0: Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. John Manley is an experienced investigator specialising in fraud and cybercrime. The former detective inspector helped establish the Fraud Squad's first computer crime squad. In the e crime squad, he created change about how Victoria Police dealt with online crime. In his 46 years in the job, nearly 47, John worked in CIBs, the Fraud Squad, Financial Services Division, the Tri-Continental Royal Commission, and he headed up Jacket, or the Joint Anti-Child Exploitation Team. Hi, John, and welcome to the Crime Couch. Hi, Rochelle. You joined Victoria Police in 1973 as a cadet. Now, what motivated you to become a cop?
1: To be honest with you, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I left school. Um, And a friend of mine applied for the... Police cadets, so I thought I might do that, see what it's like. As it turned out, I absolutely loved it and stuck around for another 46 years. Initially, you did the usual uniform, etc., sort of route. What inspired you to become a detective? I think when you you work at a place like St Kilda, the goal of just about everybody that went there uh, was to become a detective. Everybody was keen to catch crooks, and I was no different.
0: Earlier in your career, John, you worked. In the Zulu Task Force, and you investigated Italian organised crime. What led you into
1: fraud investigation? When I first joined the the CI, I went into uh, into the City West CI, and you were just sent there basically uh, under, under the old scheme. A lot of the work we did because we were CBD based was around fraud, and I did a number of large fraud investigations along with burglaries, rapes, and God knows what else, and. I guess I didn't think about doing it as a detective senior constable, but on promotion to sergeant, I went back to St Kilda and then thought I'd get a bit nearer home, so I went to Camwell, where I knew a couple of the guys in the CI there. And cut a long story short, one of my friends applied for a detective sergeant's job at the fraud squad, gave me a call and said, why don't you apply for this? So I thought, why not? Because at that stage, I was a little bit short of the seniority I needed to get a lot of other jobs in the CI, And I had the right sort of skill set, if you like, to go to fraud.
0: In those days, I can imagine the fraud squad would be investigating very different sorts of crimes to what they do today. What were the main sorts of areas that you were investigating?
1: We were investigating a lot of, maybe not a lot, but certainly a a fair number of lawyers that strayed from the path of honesty, stole money from trust accounts and so forth. There was a lot of bank fraud in those days linked to charge cards, which were relatively new you know obviously it's an area that they've steered right away from now there was also any government investigations where there was alleged corruption the fraud squad did those so they were the the primary jobs but we also did major corporate frauds a lot of the allegations that people walked into the squad with were just that allegations and some of them were very hard to prove um, you could almost spend a year investigating something before you actually knew where they had a crime nowadays we've got a much more rigid process for, I suppose, identifying those matters early on in the investigation and and basically sending them to the nearest lawyer to take civil action. You were fundamental, John,
0: in establishing an e-crime squad. Why was a computer crime squad
1: necessary? Well, it was really a no-brainer. Um, the e-crime squad, of course, was, a, I suppose, the latest addition of, of what had been smaller groups set up before that. I think Victoria Police probably set up its first um, iteration of what became the e-crime squad in the early 90s. Prior to that, we had a computer crime team at the fraud squad. But when I went there, which was in 2008, they'd been established for quite a number of years. They weren't called the e-crime squad then. I think they were called the computer crime squad from memory. And they were a group of detectives that effectively became digital forensic analysts. So they weren't investigating a lot of crime, which was you know, what they were trained to do. They developed these um, highly technical skills to analyse digital devices and extract evidence for every detective in Victoria that needed it. So anyway, when I went there, we'd been given a, a special government grant to increase the size of the squad. And I went about hiring about 11 unsworn people who became digital analysts, specialist research and development people. And that was a basic composition, a man to to run the the server farm that we had in there. And it was about recruiting them and then getting the the detectives back into the art of detecting. What we had then was we had a lot of people with great skill set who hadn't been detectives for a while, who saw opportunities in the private sector and they went out there and did exceptionally well. And and gradually, we had to recruit more police in who had probably limited technical skills, try and develop those skills, not to the point of digital analysts, but to a point where they could actually sit down and talk with IT people, understand what had happened, how crime had been committed, and then conduct an investigation based on, on that knowledge. So there was a lot of development work that had to be done there. Also, we had to obviously train private sector people that had come to the e-crime squad as digital analysts to become digital analysts. I mean, they might be great at running the local help desk at an IT company, but that's a far cry from digital forensics and presenting evidence in court that's going to stand up.
0: That strikes me, John, as really saying there's two two streams then really involved in e-crime. So you've got the detective work And as you said, you've got the digital analytical work and examination. It's very specialised.
1: What are the challenges in investigating cybercrime? Oh, look, there's many, many challenges. Probably the the greatest challenges are establishing where the crime's been committed. I mean the victims are in Australia, but the question is where's the offender? I mean, they could be anywhere in Australia, they could be anywhere overseas. And of course you're limited in, in what you can do when they're overseas in terms of identifying the you know, the the offenders, you know, if they're in some of the, um, let's say, the old Eastern Bloc countries, you're going to have real trouble identifying them because you can't get any information out. Very and much. how on earth do you track down those people? Well, there's ways of uh, of doing it, but then again, good, uh, you know, a good computer criminal will use a whole range of technologies that anonymise them. They'll run their communications through a, uh, you know, a series of of uh, networks, you know, which are relatively common nowadays. But they weren't in those days.
0: As the head of eCrime, John, what important changes did you create with VicPol about how they
1: deal with online crime? Okay, well the main changes I was involved in the development of a, of a program which was rolled out to police recruits. There were other training courses put in place for the detective training school and so forth, and it was all about teaching people how to understand technology-enabled crime. I was part of a a group called the E Crime Working Group, which I ended up chairing, and we developed investigative guidelines for cybercrime investigation and for digital forensic analysts and also for covert engagement online. And so we then took them to our respective organisations. It wasn't mandated that they had to develop training to meet those guidelines, but we strongly recommended it. And I know I pushed it very hard with Victoria Police and, and Telstra in the early days helped us roll that, that out into our recruit training in particular. But the other thing we did was you know, I was part of a team which worked in helping build guidelines for training in covert work for some of the federal government agencies. It was very interesting.
0: Would you say that's your greatest achievement in this space?
1: It was certainly a pretty important achievement. There's no doubt about that. You know, there's other things that have occurred, but that's, that's probably one of the more significant ones, I'd say, because the detective on the street has got to make a decision about, you know, whether he seizes something or whether he doesn't, what he seizes and what he doesn't, what resources he needs to draw to help with the investigation. And so that was a pretty important step. One of the other things we did was we came up with this concept of having specialists spread around the state. We called e-crime liaison officers. We brought them in. We gave them a specialist training course and they were people, go-to people out in the regions detectives could go to or uniform police could go to, to get a help, helping hand with investigations that were a little bit beyond their skills. You can be a great investigator, but if you don't understand how to how technology fits into the investigation, it can be very difficult. And Another thing I did was we did a lot of work in relation to child exploitation. So obviously, probably 50% of our work at the eCrime Squad, our digital forensic work, was around extracting evidence for child exploitation investigations. It was massive. As a result of that, it became apparent to me that you couldn't have people coming, for argument's sake, from Mildura to the city to spend two days in a little room trying to work with us to to produce the things they need for a brief of evidence. I had an opportunity, which I grabbed with both hands, to get some federal funding, and I got a selection of computers, about 18 computers, and out of my own budget I bought software and, and other pieces of hardware and was able to establish 18 little outposts around the state where people were trained, To do their own basic digital forensics work, there was instructions around, you know, what to do if it gets too hard. Like, stop, (laughs) pick up the phone, ring the e-crime squad, and you're going to have to bring it down here. But they could do a lot of the work on site, which saved the need for them to travel. They could take breaks when they wanted to, which was really important when you're looking at the sort of child abuse material. And you've got your, your own support network in the station around you. You're not going if you like, back to a motel room to sit and stew over it till you come in the next day and start going through the material again.
0: How do investigators keep across and up-to-date with crime investigation and the use of technology? Is that very important?
1: Look, it is. There's no doubt about that. And whilst I've been out of that space for a long time, technology is one area that you've got to constantly work on. You've got to constantly upskill yourself in that area, I'm not too sure what the organisation's doing now about it, but I think it's just so important.
0: What are the trends today? Do you think in
1: cybercrime? Have you seen any new trends? I think I think um, probably the, one of the biggest challenges would be cloud computing. Where is your evidence stored? How do you seize it? How do you access it? We were dealing with that, you know, probably around 2016, but not on a regular basis but it's obviously becoming more and more important because just about everybody uses cloud storage of some form. So that's certainly one of the challenges. I think keeping up to date with the technology is is another big challenge. In the very early days, of course, you'd just go out and seize a computer, a few floppy disks, um, and and you'd be pretty right. Um, You'd have your evidence there. Then, of course, you went to a more complex computer that stored massive amounts of data, And the real challenges there were just going through it to find the needle in the haystack. I remember at one stage, our systems were just bursting at the seams. We had virtually no data storage to to really do any significant analysis, because you obviously had to keep copies of your work and so forth, so that if there's a court case down the track, you've got the original digital material available, as well as the original computer and the original analytical work. I remember we took in a job with about 17 terabyte of what we believe was predominantly child abuse material. We couldn't analyse that. I, I made a, a plea to then Deputy Commissioner Graham Ashton and said, look, I've been saying for a while we need to spend a bit of money. I think it was around about April, in, toward the end of the financial year anyway. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I, I got a phone call a week later, and it was Graeme Ashton on the phone and he said, Can you spend a million dollars between now and the thirtieth of June? I said, Can we? Do you watch us? And we did. And we 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 bought a whole range of new gear. We completely restructured our network and took it from, you know, what was a pretty good good system maybe five or six years back, but certainly wasn't then, to a, a state of the art digital forensics network and server farm, which was which was great.
0: John, you were the head of e-crime, and you were then seconded to JACKET or the Joint Anti-Child Exploitation Team. What was your
1: role at JACKET? I was in charge of the police, Victoria Police component of the JACKET, I guess the notional head, although the AFP, who worked very closely and in partnership with us, actually had their own command structure. What we did, though, was we, we worked really closely as a team, which was critical, to to the functioning of the unit. We had a a joint agency tasking and coordination committee. A lot of the jobs came in from the AFP through their agency in Canberra. A lot of investigations, if you like, were referred from a group called NECMEC, which was a private sector body with police in it in the United States. Uh, We funded an Australian position over there, and effectively what they were doing was they were taking reports from your major social media companies like facebook Twitter Instagram those sorts of where people would been they'd detected child abuse images being shared on those sites and there were a lot of others too you know some of the cloud services over there the bigger ones and and they'd run those jobs through to us and we're talking thousands of jobs a year coming to Australia and then they would farm out what they thought were Something that, that could be investigated to the, to the states, we would run a tasking coordination committee and allocate those jobs. We were also getting jobs from our sockets and Crime Stoppers calls, all of those sorts of things. What we were doing though was we were catching a lot of people who were, I, I would class them as bottom feeders. They were people who were, were effectively sharing a lot of child abuse material in various online forums, but they weren't the abusers. They might have been abusing somebody, but there was no evidence at that point that they were actually doing it, because a lot of the stuff comes from Europe and so forth. It's very identifiable as having come from those areas, so you knew straight away they haven't made this stuff. They've downloaded it.
0: As the detective inspector of Jacket, you had to read and vet every affidavit and approve every search warrant. How personally challenging was that for you?
1: Look, it wasn't easy. Some of the stuff was very confronting. Obviously, if you're going to get a search warrant from a a magistrate, you've got to have um, enough evidence in the affidavit to warrant the issue of the the warrant. And so you've got to go into a bit of detail about what you're finding and how you know that that links to the person you want to search and search their premises. So, yeah, it was confronting. And, I mean, all Victoria Police warrants had to go across my desk for final approval. And I read some real horror stories over the years Fortunately, we got a result with just about every one of them, which was really good.
0: That's my next question, which was, what's your proudest achievement in this space and working in Jacket? What was the case that you really uh, felt very proud of?
1: Look, I felt really proud of everybody there. I thought they were a terrific bunch of people and, and they worked so well as a team, both the AFP and the VicPol people. And as I said, both AFP and VicPol did some amazing jobs. There was uh, one investigation that was particularly good. It involved a, a victim identification piece of work. This was a, an identification of a, a contact offender through the identification of a victim. He'd been abused in the early 2000s, about 2003, 2004, in Melbourne when he was you know, a young man of about, I suppose, 14 or 15. And, and he'd been abused for a while in the false belief that the The man who was abusing him loved him. The offender ended up going overseas and working through Southeast Asia over about the next 15 or so years as a representative for companies. And of course, what he was doing over there was going from country to country in addition to doing his job, abusing young boys between the ages predominantly of 10 to 15. And he ended up coming back to Australia. We'd identified who he was at that point, but we didn't have enough to extradite him. We knew when he was coming in. We met him at the airport. We found child abuse material in his possession. So we brought him back and we charged him with that and with the offences that we'd taken a warrant out on for the the young Australian boy in the early 2000s. And he was bailed, but part of his conditions were obviously surrender of passport. Well, we we, um, monitored what was happening with him and there was a a large amount of his personal possessions being shipped back to Australia. So we uh, met the... The container when it came in and went through it and found a lot of digital evidence in there. He kept a pretty good catalogue of every boy he'd abused through Southeast Asia over that 15-year period of video and photographic catalogue, as well as thousands of other images of child abuse material, pretty significant, serious child abuse material. It's all serious, but some of it is absolutely extreme. And he was in that space. That was where he he got his, his pleasure and we uh, were able to get him a 35-year sentence, which was one of the highest sentences at that time for the, for those offences. And the overseas offending is, is particularly important. We charge him with a lot of offences committed outside Australia, which you can do under Australian law. Not many people have had been charged with those offences at that time, but if you think you can go overseas and abuse kids, you can't. If you get caught, you're facing some pretty significant charges in Australia. John, you've worked a long time in this space.
0: What makes a good sex crime detective?
1: I think you've got to have a lot of empathy and be very compassionate to to the victims. I think you've got to have a, an ability to deal with the material that you, you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. We put in all sorts of safeguards, if you like, in place so that Anybody who comes there, for instance, goes through a process of being exposed to the material with support so that they understand the risks, and, and there's no skin off our nose if they don't feel like they can do it after that limited exposure. There's that. But then there's the, the ability to talk to these people, to interview them, and to actually get the sort of them having the sort of conversations with you at interview that, that you really want just to tie the, the loose ends in the uh, brief you know, usually we've got a lot of digital evidence, so you don't need a lot of extra, but it just makes it a lot easier if they'll sit down and talk to you and and just, as I said, tie off the loose ends. So that's the sort of person you want. And probably 50% of our staff were female members, mothers, and they were absolutely great. A lot of them were part-timers. We had a a lot of part-time girls working there. And yeah, they worked as hard, if not harder than the full-timers. And they were... Terrific people. So, you know, you, you've got to have a, a bent for this sort of investigation because it's it's certainly not for everybody.
0: How do you reflect
1: on your nearly forty seven year career now, John? Look, I loved it. I loved going to work every day. There were a lot of challenges in in the cyber crime and the jacket space, predominantly around just getting the technology developing the skills, getting to where you needed to be, and then keeping pace with the change. They were the real challenges. I knew when I'd got to you know, probably the end of 46 years that it was time to, to think about doing something else. I'd had a brother-in-law who died early, and I didn't want to uh, do that and miss you know, what I could, could achieve through retirement. So I knew it was just time for me to go, you can't solve the, the worries of the world by yourself. And it just seemed, seemed right.
0: Was it a difficult decision to make because you retired in 2020? Was that a difficult decision?
1: Look, it was. It really was. You know, just signing that bit of paper.
0: Your investigative skill, your forensic mind and the
1: pursuit of justice, what happens to those qualities when you leave the job? You probably always got that interest in in that work and and I have kept that interest up. I read a lot about what's happening in in the IT world. You know, the, the sorts of crimes that are being committed at the moment involving technology, but, but also I have an interest in all crimes. But I've, I've also always had more diverse interests. I love doing anything from a building perspective. I work on cars. <laughs> I work on computers sometimes. So uh, I've, I've got no lack of things to do. In fact, I've always got a list going and it, it's usually my list. I know my wife puts a few things on it occasionally, but I probably drive myself harder than she drives me.
0: What's next for you then, John?
1: I think maybe a a little bit of work on the caravan and then a trip up north. Uh, We've talked about that. We've done some pre-planning for that, but I'll wait till I get through the football season and I'd like to see St Kilda in the finals, but I don't know how likely that's going to be. After Friday night, maybe.
0: Well, good luck with that, John, and thank you very much for sitting with me today on the crime couch.
1: Thanks, Rochelle. All the best.
0: Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch.